Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Those words are words from a sermon of C.S. Lewis. The sermon's entitled, The Weight of Glory. And the context to these words is this. He speaks about the fact that the gospel calls us to self-denial. And we pick up on that. And we exhort one another in ourselves. We exhort one another in ourselves to, to deny ourselves, to put down the desires of the flesh. But C.S. Lewis points out that, that the Christian life is not denial in itself, but denial for a reason. Christ calls us to deny ourselves in order to follow him. We are called by the gospel to be dead to the world as an end in itself and alive in Christ. And the point is this, that the believer understands the gospel to be that precious pearl of great price, so precious that the believer is prepared to go and sell everything he has, to lose everything in order to gain that treasure. Is that the holy desire which animates our souls and our lives, that we desire the kingdom, that we desire Christ, or are we far to easily pleased. Now in our text, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, when we, when we get to our text, the apostle has already worked through chapters 1 and 2, which we read together. He has painted the picture of the glories of Christ, and he has contrasted that with the shabbiness of the things of this fallen world. And the point that he comes to is this, what are you seeking? What do you have your mind set on? And I want to expand a little bit on C.S. Lewis's picture of that little boy making mud pies in the slum. Imagine that his daddy has bought a house at the seaside. It's not just a holiday, but it's a move. And daddy's on his way home to pick up the family and to bring them to their new home. Now, it would be a dull and foolish little boy who would simply go and play in the mud of the filth of the street in the slum as usual. 
A child with any understanding would gather his things and carefully pack his new bathing suit and his brand new bucket and shovel, every act calculated, intentional, deliberate to prepare for the glorious home to which he is moving. There's no time to play in the filth. I'm getting ready to go to the beach, to go to the ocean. And, he, and what he knows, he sets his mind on, and that affects his actions, his choices, and his way of living life. Well, that is the dynamic of Colossians in in fact, most of the epistles, you, you notice as you read through the epistles of Paul that he begins by building up a foundation of doctrine, of true things of God. And then on top of that foundation of doctrine, he builds what life looks like as a result of that truth, of that scriptural truth. And that's what he's doing here in Colossians as well. And our text is at the, at the point where he's switching from doctrine to life. Now, it was the Presbyterian theologian J. Gresham Machen who said that Christianity is a life founded upon a doctrine. It's important that as the Scripture does, so we hold those things together. And our text occurs after two chapters of doctrine. Two chapters of setting forth the glorious heavenly doctrine of who Christ is and what Christ has done. And now in chapter 3, Paul begins to apply this to the daily life of the church. And if you have your Bible open, it will help you to understand the sermon better as we begin at verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ. Now, Colossians... This letter was written to a small church in the town of Colossae, a fairly insignificant city. But Paul, in this letter to this little church, kind of in the backwoods, he gives us the most exalted descriptions of the glory of Christ that we can find in the scriptures, and you, you saw that as we read chapter 1, and you looked between verses 15 through to 20, where he, he waxes eloquent. It's breathtaking as he, he brings us to the heights of the glory of who Christ is, the preeminence of Christ in, in the creation of the world, the preeminence of Christ in the creation of the human race, the preeminence of Christ in the creation of a new world and a new human race, the church. And this Christ, all glorious in creation and redemption, in him, says Paul, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. We read that. Do we understand that? In Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Do we understand that? In the man, Jesus Christ, the infinite oceans of God's divine love and grace, truth, power, and holiness dwell bodily. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
Now, here is the mystery of the gospel, says Paul. In this God-man, Jesus Christ, in whom all the fullness of God dwells bodily, the mystery of the gospel is this, that this Christ lives in you. You have been raised with Christ. Those words, with Christ, that that, that phrase with Christ, it occurs a number of times in our text, and it is the language of union, that we were connected to Christ, that we're part of him. And earlier in chapter 2, he talks about the head and the body. That's how closely connected we are. We belong together. We are with Christ. And that means something. That changes everything. If you want to walk into the White House, you can't. You can't even get close. There are all kinds of barricades and fences and guards and security. You can see it from a distance, maybe. But if you have a close relationship with the president, and you walk in to the White House with the president, and when somebody asks you, are you supposed to be here? You say, well, I'm with him. That changes everything. I'm with him. That will be enough. You are with Christ. And that means you can walk right into heaven, right into the presence of the Father, in the presence of all the holy angels and the, and the heavenly beings under the throne and the elders and the church in glory. You can walk right into his presence. And if anybody would ask you, what are you doing here? Why are you coming in? You can say, well, I'm with him. I am with Christ. Now, how? How are we with Christ? How does that work? Well, when Paul uses that phrase a couple of times in our text, with Christ, he's echoing the gospel that he's laid out in chapters 1 and 2. If you look there at chapter 2, verse 12, if you've got your Bible open, he's talking about the fact that the believer is united with Christ by God through the gift of faith. And there in 2, verse 12, he says, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, what does that mean? Well, your baptism declares two things, that you've died and that you've become alive, that you've been raised. And that fact that we've died, it comes back in our text. You see that in verse 3 of our text, for you have died. That's what our our baptism is telling us. You have died. That's a fact. And it's a good thing. There you were, dead in your sins and trespasses, in bondage, in slavery to the elemental spirits of the world. What does that mean? Well, it just means the ABCs, the basic things of the world, the basic things of a fallen, corrupt world, which are under the power of the rulers and authorities of the kingdom of darkness. And you, outside of Christ, I, outside of Christ, we were slaves. And for a slave, death is freedom. For a slave, death is liberation. Because when the slave dies, finally the slave can no longer feel the whip, can no longer hear the orders of the cruel taskmaster. You see, death breaks the bondage. Death breaks that horrible relationship between slave driver 
and slave. And Paul says that has happened to you. You have died. You are dead to the world. And the world is dead to you. You no longer have any relationship, anything to do with anything connected to the world of sin and death and corruption. That is the gospel of our baptism. The gospel of our baptism says, look, you've been born as a child of Adam. And therefore, you share in his corruption. You are connected by birth to the head of the fallen human race. And where is that head? He's in the ground. He's dead. He's corrupt. He's decaying. And that's who you're connected to by birth. But when Christ comes into our life, he cuts all our ties with the first Adam. He gives us faith. He unites us to himself, the last Adam. And in Christ, we are dead to the world and alive to God. That's the gospel. That's the gospel sealed to us in our baptism. We carry that gospel on our foreheads wherever we go, at every moment of every day. And Paul appeals to that gospel truth. If then you have been raised with Christ. He's not saying if in the sense of, well, maybe you are, maybe you aren't. But he's saying if, as you most certainly have been, you have been raised with Christ. Well, how high was Christ raised? He wasn't just raised out of the ground to be walking on the surface of the earth. Christ was raised from the dead. He was lifted up. He was exalted to the very highest place in the universe. He is seated, says our text, at the right hand of God. And that means that he is in the place of the highest, the ultimate power and authority. You cannot get any higher than Christ is. Now, Paul, when he writes to the Ephesians, he says that we are seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We have been raised up, and we have been exalted, and in Christ our head we sit in glory. The dust of earth sits on the throne of heaven. And Paul says, well, seeing that's the case, you have to focus on that. This is the reality which ought to fill the field of view of your life. Seek the things that are above. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And what is he saying? Well, what he's not saying is this. He's not saying, well, you ought to walk around daydreaming about heaven all the time. Maybe move into a convent or a monastery and read the Bible and pray all day long. Be so heavenly-minded that you're of no earthly use. That's not what Paul is saying. What he's saying is this. You need to know what is the focus of your life. What are you seeking? What are you living for? What do you have your mind set on? What is your goal? 
What is your destination? In what does your life find meaning and purpose? I was looking this week at pictures of solar system. You know, if you fill your screen with the earth, it's, it's beautiful. It's glorious. Fill your whole screen with the globe. But if you, if you change the perspective on your screen and you fill your screen with the sun, the earth becomes tiny and insignificant, less than 1% of the size. It's kind of like a, a ladybug and a soccer ball. That's the kind of the size relationship there. It's still there, you can see it, but it's kind of tiny. And if you fill your screen with a picture of the Milky Way, you can't even see the Earth anymore. And yet the Milky Way is just one galaxy in an infinity of galaxies that fills up the universe. All the galaxies in the universe are but a speck compared to the infinite oceans of God's glory and God's love in Christ. And when that fills your field of vision, then all of the insistent and clamoring attempts of this corrupt world to seduce and control us, they simply melt away. We dismiss them. We shrug them off. We shrug them off because we only have eyes for the infinite glories of Christ. You see, because that glory is not just the infinite glory of Christ, but it is an infinite glory which is ours in Christ. What does the Apostle John say? See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. What is the Bible teaching us? The Bible's teaching us that that glorious description of Christ that we read in chapter 1, that his glory is a glory in which we share. And then we look around at our lives and we see our pain and our disabilities and we see uh, the problems in our lives and our afflictions and, and we see our limitations and we see our failures and we think, well, where's the glory? Doesn't seem very glorious to me. I mean, sometimes it is. Sometimes it's great. Sometimes life is wonderful, but sometimes it's not. And the Apostle John, in what I just quoted, as well as the Apostle Paul here in our text, remind us that our glory in Christ is at this moment hidden with God in Christ. Much the same way as when Jesus walked the earth as the King of glory, the Lord of glory, and nobody gave him a second look. The world saw him as weak and pathetic and despised. And in the same way, 
the world does not see us as we are, as who we are in Christ. They do not see us as kings and queens and princes and princesses who will rule over the universe with Christ, who are already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. They don't see that. In fact, we have a hard time. We know it, but we have a hard time believing it. We don't really see it when we look in the mirror. But Paul says, look, the day is coming. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What does that mean? Well, let's cast our minds back to paradise for a moment. If Adam and Eve, as they were before the fall, clothed in holiness and glory and righteousness, reflecting the brilliance of the glory and the holiness, the truth and the righteousness of God. If Adam and Eve, before the fall, if they were to appear before us today, they would be as gods. We would be tempted to fall down and to worship them because they reflected the glory of God. But that's nothing compared to Christ. Because you see, Christ isn't just the image, the reflection of God's glory. Christ is God's glory. He is the very radiance of the glory of God. No reflection but glory itself. And when Jesus appears, we shall see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that glory is the glory into which we have been plunged. We are in Christ. And that glory has been poured into us. Christ is in us. Think of a bucket, a bucket thrown into the depth of the ocean. It is plunged in, it is immersed in the ocean, and it is at the same time full of the ocean. That's what it means to be in Christ and for Christ to be in us. We are immersed in glory. And we are full of glory. What a difference that is from the tacky, pathetic attempts of man without God to exalt himself and to seek his glory. It's like taking a little bucket with a hole in it and trying to fill it with water. It is neither surrounded by nor filled with any glory at all. And we're talking about some very heady stuff here, the the eternal and infinite glory of, of Christ. And what does it all mean for our lives? How does it change Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday? Well, our text, as we've said, is is at the climax of two chapters of doctrine. Paul is teaching us a worldview. He is teaching us a way to think, a way to know the world rightly. And now, having taught us a biblical worldview, he will move on 
to teach us a biblical lifestyle which is built and based on that worldview. He will teach us in chapters 3 and 4 a way to act and a way to live in the world in the light of these truths. And this afternoon we're going to be dealing with the content of chapters 3 and 4. But I want to end the sermon with two applications of this worldview that Paul teaches us. And those two applications have to do, first of all, with the worship of the church, and secondly, with the worship of the world. First of all, then, the worship of the church. You remember that at some point, some, I believe it were Greeks, they came to the disciples and they said, Sir, we would see Jesus. They wanted to see Christ. That is what every believer says. And I've preached before on pulpits where I have those words engraved on the pulpit to remind the preacher of what he's supposed to be doing. Sir, we would see Jesus. We don't want to hear you carry on about what you think. We want to hear and see Jesus placed before us in the gospel. If you look back at chapter 1 and verse 25, you, you see that Paul reminds us that that's what he does. That's what he's called to do. He says, look, I'm a minister of the gospel. And my job, look there in verse 25 and 26 of, of chapter 1, my job is to make the word of God fully known. The riches of the glory of the mystery of the gospel is this. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil. And so the worldview that Paul is teaching us in chapters 1 and 2, and which he's in, encouraging us to hold on to in, in our text, is a worldview which sees everything in Christ. And that changes the way we worship. You see, the less we see Christ, the less Christ is preached, the more we will feel the pressure to fill worship services with the weak and beggarly elements of this world, the more we lust after worldly philosophy and legalistic regulations, the more Christ will disappear. And in his place, we will have self-made religion, worship not of Christ, but worship of our own will and our own lusts. And with the power of the glory of Christ is not proclaimed from the pulpit, then we will have to settle for checkbox Christianity, a list of rules of how to be a good person, sermons of ten principles for a happy marriage and things like that. But we don't seek the glory of Christ in the word and the sacraments. Then we will seek to make worship meaningful, between quotation marks, by introducing more and more things of this world, rituals, bells, and smells, and incense, and priestly garments, and the lighting of candles, and the shofar of the Old Testament, and the ark, and, and we will start wanting to celebrate the Passover, as there are many churches doing. You see, what happens when the church denies the reality of the person and the work of Jesus Christ? It goes back to the old 
Testament shadows. It's like a butterfly trying to cram itself into the cocoon from which it emerged. It is not right. And then there's the, the attempt of the, the church to, to please the world, to, to be seeker-sensitive, to be attractive to the world, and the church seeks praise performance teams and stand-up comedy and theater and, and dance and worship, which seeks to indulge and cater to the senses apart from the word and sacrament. You know, when the church feels that it has to do these things, it's a clear sign of Ichavot, Ichabod, the glory has departed. Christ is not present. The church does not seek the things that are above. And when the church has nothing to say to the world, the church rises up to play with the world, just like the people of Israel around the golden calf at Mount Sinai. And so, brothers and sisters, there is a reason why Reformed worship is so simple and why it has to say, stay so simple. Because Jesus said, there will come a day when they don't worship in Jerusalem or in Mount Gerizim, but the church will worship in spirit and truth. The church which seeks the things that are above, is lifted up in Christ into the heavenlies. And when we worship God in spirit and truth, we accept no intrusion of the earthly and of the vain elements which drag us down. But we set our minds on the things that are above. And God speaks to us from heaven in Christ. And we hear the word of Christ and we pray the word of Christ. And we sing the word of Christ. And we eat and we drink the word of Christ in the sacrament. And so this worldview, which Paul teaches us, radically changes the worship of the church. And secondly, I want to look at it in relation to the worship of the world. Because everybody worships. And the essence of worldly worship is the worship of created things and not the creator. And the world is awash with all kinds of philosophy. The love of wisdom disconnected from Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The world loves wisdom, which is foolishness. The world loves knowledge, which is ignorance and empty deceit. And the world comes at you in a thousand ways and demands your worship. To be a good person, to be a virtuous person, you must think this way and act this way and perform this action and wear this ribbon and display this flag. And in the church of the woke, in the religion of the rainbow, there are a million do's and don'ts. And even the most fanatically faithful of that religion live in terror of committing the sin which leads to cancellation for which there is no atonement or forgiveness. And we can get caught up in that. Even as Christians, we're swimming in this ocean of false worship. 
And we can start to think, well, what if I say, what if I do the wrong thing? What if I get canceled? What if I lose my job? What if I suffer? The Bible tells us, the Word of God comes to us this morning and says, don't play that game. It doesn't mean to say we should argue and be obnoxious on every little thing with the world. But it also doesn't mean to say that we should exhaust ourselves trying to comply with the world while at the same time staying a Christian. We should not stoop to making mud pies in the filth of the slum. The answer, brothers and sisters, is to simply look up and to be lifted up in Christ to a higher plane, to seek the things that are above, to set your minds on the things that are above. And when we do that, when we live like that, then all the petty, shrill demands of the worldly religion of our time will simply fade away. They will, they will be insignificant and have no power over us because we seek the glory of Christ. And we set our minds on the glory of Christ. And we fill our souls with the glory of Christ. And we hunger and we thirst to know the glory of Christ. And then, as we will see this afternoon, then we will live to the glory of Christ. Now, what is on your bucket list? Do you have one? What have you set your mind on? What are you longing for? What are you living for? I go back to the question of C.S. Lewis. Are we too easily pleased? Are we half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us? Are we like that ignorant child, content with making mud pies in the slum, when we have been offered a new home by the ocean? Or do we say together with the believer in Psalm 16, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, no matter how hard and painful life is. I can say that in Christ. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. 
at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Amen.